Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Access Netflix, Prime Video, Live TV and more with the Xfinity X1 voice remote. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit an Xfinity store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. The Last Line is a completely free podcast that takes a lot of time, effort and hard work to make happen. So if you'd like to support the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time you're listening to this podcast. My name is James Alban, and you are listening to episode 11 of The Last Line. Yes, that's right, we're back. Um, it's been a while since we last spoke. Um, I, I promised that we'd be back around February, March. That didn't happen. Uh, life gets in the way. And uh, I've been busy recording a, a whole heap of episodes for you to enjoy and hopefully we'll just be able to keep it going and going and going and going and going. Um, so how are we all? Have we been enjoying uh, Love Island so far? Um, yeah, Love Island this year, I have, have made the decision that I'm not even going to bother pretending that I'm not watching Love Island. Last year I was very much, oh, I you know I, I wouldn't be watching Love Island. No, that's beneath. And then secretly watching it. Um, so this year I've decided I'm just going to tell everyone that I'm watching Love Island um, because I, I think everyone else is watching it anyway. Anyway, I'd just like to tell you first before we get into it that uh, all of the podcast episodes that have been released so far and any future episodes will also be released over on youtube.com forward slash last line films we don't we don't film these podcasts but some people like to consume their content through youtube and i'm happy to deliver on that front um if you like the podcast and please do uh, subscribe leave us a comment leave us a rating share it with all of your friends it is much appreciated you can also head over to lastlinefilms.com check out uh, some information about the podcast there. Also, um, some of the films that I've made over the years. We, I've even made one recently with a friend of the podcast, Tom Williams. Um, we made a little uh, documentary about his gig at London Scala. Please do check it out and give him some love over at his YouTube channel. You can follow us on Twitter at James Alban. You can follow me on Instagram at James Alban. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at The Last Line Podcast. You can also go to facebook.com forward slash The Last Line and leave a like there for information about the podcast and all manner of goodies. So, who did we talk to for this week's edition of the podcast? Well, you will already know if you've downloaded it because it says it in the title, but it's comedian, actor, and musician Nick Helm. During my conversation with Nick earlier this year, we talked about the evolution of his stand-up persona. We have a rather extensive and scientific uh, chat about belly button fluff, and I get a lot of advice as a budding stand-up comedian, which hopefully will also be helpful to any other stand-up comedians out there or anyone who's just interested in uh, stand-up comedy and so we start at the beginning with Nick describing to me his early days as a stand-up comic I did my first gig in September 2006 and then I did my second gig in sort of like February 2007 yeah, yeah. and so you know and back then there were less gigs and right. so it would take you that long to get another gig and then eventually when I was up to full speed I could only really gig like once or twice a fortnight. Okay. So by the time you'd learnt something, you were still nervous again by the time you got back yeah. to the next gig. So it was difficult to sort of like start. But I don't know, there's lots of gigs now, aren't there? But there's also lots of comedians. Yes. So it's, um, there are lots of gigs, but to... There's not enough audience. 
there's yeah, there's lots of gigs, not enough audience. So generally, you have to bring people more like, comedians than audience members. Yeah, yeah. and um, generally, even though there are more gigs, a lot of them will be like booked up for like three months in advance yeah. because there's so many people trying to do it. But I don't think it's that different. I just think there was less. Right. I think that there were less gigs, um, and then there were less comedians, and then it's sort of like a big. There was a big comedy boom in the early 2000s, yeah. and that took a while to sort of. And now it's like a legitimate career where they do like university courses, and you go, well, yeah, "We never yeah. had any of that." When, when I was at university, we had um, we had comedians that came to visit, you know, and then you know, John Oliver came to our, our, oh, really? our, our university, and um, and you go, "Oh right, yeah." So comedies, but it was still sort of like an unobtainable thing that you could do. And now it's kind of like. Um, I think as well because of Twitter and it's yeah. possible to sort of um, be funny without getting on stage do you know what I mean it's actually a bit, comedy is a lot more um, uh, not accessible and I don't mean from an audience point of view but I mean from if you're someone that wants to be funny yeah then I think that it's easier to do that now although it sort of balances out I suppose because there's less audience and less there's <laughs> a tipping point where Suddenly, at some point in the country, there's going to be more comedians than, than <laughs> yeah. human beings. And yeah. so it's just like, oh, right, OK. Um, but then even like, when you go right back to like the 90s, and I say right back to the 90s, there was like, like five comedians. And so and now yeah, like, yeah. Edinburgh was like three rooms in, you know, three rooms above pubs in, in Edinburgh. And, yeah. uh, and now it's kind of like this huge industry. So it's kind of just changing all the time. I think um, the thing I'm struggling with is, um, what's it? What's the phrase? Learning to run before you can walk, or is that mm -hmm. the phrase? Um, that is I mean, a phrase. Learning, is that yeah. the phrase that you want to use? Who knows? But learning to walk before you can run. Learning to walk before you can run, because I get frustrated about only doing five minutes, which I'm sure every comedian goes through that. Oh, I, do you know what though? Yeah, okay. I think I think there is that, mm. and I think that there is. There's, it's like an apprenticeship where yeah. you have to sort of learn how to. But I am shit at doing five minutes, and I was always really, you know, more comfortable doing an hour. Because this is what I was going to say. Because because I, um, from having like watched your stuff, um, being a fan of yours, I always think. I, I sort of thought that that you're 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 more of an, an hour person, and I couldn't imagine you doing. I don't know what to do with five, five minutes. minutes. I think five minutes is like almost. A, uh, I did a, I did a good seven minutes on. Uh, there was a Frankie Boyle show a while ago. Yeah. In 2012, it was ages ago, and um, uh, and I remember I sort of like really worked out what a short set would be. I think I might have watched it last night. It was, uh, <laughs> it was on the Boyle Variety. Yeah, things. I watched it last so night. So then I did, I think, what, but what it consists of, it consists of like five jokes and then a short poem and then a song and then that's it. Yeah. And you feel like you've got the sort of like the whole experience of my act in a short amount of time. Right. But it's still really tight. And you've still, but there's a little narrative in there where I come on and I get yeah, upset yeah. and then I leave and it's all sort of like thing. But, um, but really, you're more comfortable doing an hour. I never, I've never known what to do with five minutes. Because I found uh, one way you're doing like the the fast fringe or whatever. It's obviously like promoting. Oh yeah, like the, I just did one thing. I think you just came out and did your bully like letter poem. from the yeah the bully. Yeah, yeah, that's the first time I ever did that poem as well. Um, and that went yeah, I was yeah that went that was nice. But I mean, it's just weird. I just I, I don't really know what to do with that amount of time, and um, and. Uh, even when I was doing 20, which basically I did 20 for Russell Howard and then they cut that down to 14. And even when it's something like that, it's kind of, there's a lot of thought put, or there was a lot of thought put into doing, uh, you know, like having a beginning, a middle and an end within a yeah. show. Because you kind of wanted to be like I did. I wanted self to be self-contained. So that if you were on at the beginning or in the middle, you'd get to a point where they'd go, well, fucking hell, you have to put him on last because no one can follow that. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, um, not that, do you know what I mean? Because it was just a self-contained thing where you just go, yeah. But then also it would work in the middle and it would, you know, um, and I guess that was it. But then always with an hour, you just kind of like get to sort of, 
explore lots more. And also you get to do themes, and I, yeah. and I find that fun. Because mm. it's been interesting going to open mics. Obviously, you see a lot of people starting out, and, and you see... Um, some people try and fit several bits into five minutes. I mean, obviously it depends on their style and stuff, yeah. but um, they'll try and do a few topics in five minutes, which always, which for me is not felt natural. No. So I'll, I'll do like one thing for five minutes. But obviously if the audience isn't on board with that yeah. thing at the start... It... Well, I think there is a bit of trial and error, and it's not necessarily... Um... There's no, there's no real right or wrong. No. And I know that I, my approach to doing an hour is different from, say, uh, Josh Whittacombe's approach to doing an hour. And Josh will... Um, in fact, a lot of those, that wheelhouse comedians, what they do is they write, like, 12 five-minute sets. Mm -hmm. And then you can cut it up after you do your, your hour yeah. and then you can kind of like do five minutes on you've got five minutes clean for, t for radio right yeah. and do you know what I mean and you can kind yeah. of like, and I think that's a really clever way of doing it but I've just never got I guess the closest I've got to that is I'll write a show with songs in and then when I do eight out of ten cuts I can do one of my songs on eight out of ten yeah. cuts but um but in terms of like and also a song is kind of like my way of doing material you know mm. it is material yeah. <laughs> but um but um but it's not necessarily traditional stand-up. And my traditional stand-up, or the thing that's closest to my traditional stand-up, when you take it out of an hour, is so related to that hour. For instance, I did a show about dreams, and a show about mm. war, and a show about being famous, and all this stuff. And so the, all of the material is so much related to that. It's not like you're going into a club and making casual observations that everyone can just get on board with. Yeah. You, you, I've written a show that's all about a specific thing, and when you come and watch it, you're all on board. Mm -hmm. But when you're cutting it up into five-minute chunks, it kind of doesn't, it falls apart a bit because you need all the other stuff to give it the context. Um, so I don't know, I, don't, I think that there's something in kind of like trying lots of bits and pieces, but also, when you're starting out, yeah. you just gather together all your good bits, and then it's like, yeah. oh, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but that joke works, and that joke works, and then when you, you know... And when you get like 100, 200 gigs under your belt, then you kind of like know what you're doing a bit better. Yeah. But then I've just taken a year off and I've started gigging again. And you just right. like, I think my recovery period will be quicker. Like I'll get back into it. Yeah. But it's still hard getting started again. You know, so I just think you're never finished learning. No. And you're never a finished product, do you? Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of, uh, we're all under construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's Missy Elliott, yeah. Because part of me wants to go, well, I'll, I'll, I'll um, book somewhere at a fringe fest. I mean, but then it's, it's, you sort of think, well, that's silly because you've only done 15 gigs or whatever. But you, you kind of go, well, I want to book somewhere at a fringe fest or do half an hour or something. And then I can, even if that half an hour's crap, I can just, I've done a half an hour and I can that's see a, what it feels I, like. I think... Um, I think do whatever you want to do. I'm <laughs> honest. I think that there's. I know when we started out, um, there was so much emphasis put on. <clears throat> there's so much emphasis put on. Get, uh, you know, oh, don't do an hour yet because then you won't be eligible for best newcomer. Right. And you go, yeah, great. But there's one person that's going to win best newcomer the year that you do your gig, right? Yeah. And there's, there's a chance that it's you. So stop. I would stop thinking about things in terms of competitiveness, and I would start thinking about things in terms of yourself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just think that uh, I, I did, what did I do? I wrote my first Edinburgh show, which wasn't a stand-up show, mm. in 2001, which was like a dark sketch show. And then I did the uh, same 2002. And then I wrote a play and, uh, and, you know, and then, so I did that. I used to work in a pub and then I used to work in, um, when I started getting more gigs at night in the evening I couldn't work in the pub so I started working in um, office and did like admin jobs mm -hmm. and I'd take all that money and I would put it into Edinburgh uh, I did theatre at university but yeah. um, it was not a practical course it was it was all mainly theory and it's about a theatre and education company and um, and uh, I'd get tour around schools and I'd write and direct the shows and I'd tour around schools and make some money off that, it wasn't very fulfilling. Um, 
uh, and I would guess I was sort of being modest or I was sort of putting off what I actually wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Which was, and I didn't know what that was at that point, but I knew that... Um, really rude because we're doing a podcast <laughs> in a public space um, so with the creakiest floorboards really, yeah. um, so it was um, yeah so I didn't really know what I wanted to do and then um, and then what happened was one day I just sort of like got to like not my wits end but I got to a point where I didn't know I didn't I was stuck I did mm. quite well at uni and uh, and then it wasn't like you when you leave uni you realise oh it's actually it's actually a lot harder <laughs> it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be you sort of walked out and you think hey, I'm going to fucking yeah, the world absolutely and then you realise very quickly that oh uh, yeah no one gives a shit <laughs> and um, and then it was just and I found that I found that a bit like crushing I suppose and so I made a list of all the things that I maybe one day wanted to do hmm. you know if I was a six year old you know I tried to kind of like be Right, oh right, so I'd put stuff like, oh, I want to write a book and I want to be in a band, but I'd also put stuff like, I want to be an astronaut, you know? <laughs> and then what would happen is I'd go through the list, Yeah. and I'd go, I can't be an astronaut because I'm n not good at science, and I'm, you know, 30, 25, so I've left it too late. And then, so you cross that off, you go, oh, well, I, I, I could be in a band one day, mm. but that requires organising a load of other people. I've just done theatre, and it's the same sort of thing where, you're organising other people yeah. to follow your dreams, and it's kind of like, and so I was, and you know, oh, I'll write a book, but that'll take months, right? So it wasn't the laziness, it was just, I need to do something now to get me out of the house, mm -hmm. and so, you know, and so then one of the things was stand-up comedian, and I've always, you know, grew up watching stand-up, and I love comedy, and it was all that, but I never thought it was a thing, mm. uh, which I think is probably the thing that change, has changed the most, is that people think that it's a job now. Yeah. And back then it was just like I was living at my parents' house in St Albans and I didn't know anyone that did comedy and it was like I didn't have any connections whatsoever and, I, and there wasn't sort of like a, a clear line, you know, um, to get there and uh, there was no one my age that was doing it and then, so I, I found like this course and I, I did it and then I realised that I, I, I liked doing it and then you go, oh right, but... I'd already done several hours in Edinburgh before, before um, not a stand-up, it was theatre yeah, yeah. theater and dark comedy and stuff like that. But um, and, uh, I wrote a musical, and, but when I started doing um, stand-up, that, 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 that was the point where you go, um, oh, it's like all of the skills that I've learned doing all this other stuff, like, mm. including going into schools and talking to strangers for the first time. It's like I used to do a show about um, road safety to... Uh, 515 year olds right right 15 year old boys at a boys school that all hated me and you go do you know what having watched your stand up I can't imagine <laughs> if you go in and do that and you can survive that then you go oh fucking 15 15 apathetic uh, uh, audience members on a Sunday night mm. is easy you know and also it's what I want to do you know yeah, yeah and I don't mind I don't mind all of that I, I you know it's all that thing you know, it's better to be at the bottom of a ladder that you want to climb than halfway yeah. up one that you're not interested in and so it's just like that and so um, but so so in terms of kind of like uh, walking before you can run sometimes that's great but I think there's a lot of emphasis put on uh, d delaying the inevitable which is that you're going to do an hour at some point and you might as well just jump in and enjoy it if that's what you want to do just do it yeah and I think there's too much pressure put on awards and all of that so because it's just kind of like it doesn't matter and you know what um, so the year in 2009 I did my first sort of hour but it was basically it was me doing about 45 to 50 minutes with a guest and I'd have a guest every day like mm -hmm. uh, Joel Domet would come in or Sarah Pascoe would come in and they'd come on and they'd do like I think, I think the idea was that they'd bring in a mug mm. and they'd talk about their favourite mug and then they'd do their party piece, and then maybe we'd sing a song together. And it, you know, didn't Joel Dommett have like a really weird one? It was disgusting. I remember you talking about this on Comedians Comedian. It was disgusting. Was, he, uh, he, he? He, he lactated. Oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, no one is under the assumption that it was milk. 
Right. It's just sort of this, it's Weird. either a sweat gland or it was pus or it was something, <laughs> it was something clear that oozed out of his nipple and it was absolutely, <laughs> James Acaster was in the room and he said it was, uh, he said it was one of the funniest things that he'd seen because I was so disgusted. He's like the happiest man on the planet, right. Joel, Joel Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Lovely, lovely boy. <laughs> Lovely boy, um, and I'm not. <laughs> and the contrast of him with his huge grin, squeezing his nipples till liquid came out of it, and me being absolutely horrified by it. It was just yeah, horrible. Um, oh yeah, horrible. <laughs> but so did that. So that didn't. I don't think that that quite qualified as me doing an hour. But what happened is uh, at the end of the month, I couldn't get someone to do it, so I ended up doing the whole hour. Right? Yeah, that's 2009, 2010. I think I technically qualified to get nominated for best newcomer. But um, I didn't, and um, and, I, and, it, and uh, to be fair to me, um, <laughs> it didn't ever occur to me that I could be, I would be, or I could be, or anything like that. It never occurred to me that I would be nominated uh, for best newcomer at the Foster's Awards or whatever it was called back then. And yeah. uh, and and and. It, and <laughs> Never occurred to me that I would get nominated, and to be fair to the awards panel, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like you go. Oh. It was only afterwards where people said, "Oh wow," because oh, it was a big show. It was like I started the show at the beginning of the month, and there was like three or four people that were in the audience. And mm. by like a week in, it was standing room only. Daniel Kitson and Jimmy Carr had all come, and oh, it was yeah. like, and it was literally, it was kind of, like, and I wasn't. No one was telling me anything. Yeah. No one was coming up to me going, "Wow, your show's really good." Uh, people would just sort of like come up and say, "There's a lot, a lot of buzz about your show," and you'd go, "Is there?" Because no one's telling me about this. Yeah. And it was like a. Sh- a sh- How did it go from three or four people to? to Literally, it doubled every day until just, just people word of mouth. People until, said, "Oh, yeah." This until mid month, it was sort of like it was, uh, and I did a thing. I said, "What did I do?" I did a thing, where on the first day, I mean, the show was always designed that um, uh, when we were previewing it that um, I'd get someone out of the audience mm. at the beginning and I'd sing a song with them. I'd sing, like, uh, nice to meet you, nice to greet you. This was my song. And to, I'd sing that with them and we'd slap our legs and then, and then I'd sit them down and it was just like this weird little thing. And then on the first day in Edinburgh, there were seven people in the room or something like that. It was, it was like a low, it was a low number, single figures. And I think my agent was in the room and I just got everyone up on stage. Right. And then the next day there was like 10 people in the audience and I got them all up on stage. And then the next day there was 20 people and then I got them all up on stage. And then eventually there was, it was like, I think it was like a 70, 75 seater. So it was, it was like, it was downstairs at the Tron. So it's quite a small thing. And by the end of it, but you know, I think uh, my friend Rob, who was playing guitar for me um, that year, um, and it was sold out. Like people just like standing up, like by the bar and looking around pillars and stuff because yeah. there was no room. And Rob said, "Well, what are you going to do today?" And I said, "Well, I'll just get them all up on stage." So we got them all. And then people were coming up to me in the street, going, um, "I haven't thought about this in years, by the way." But people were coming up to me in the street, and they were going, um, "Oh, apparently you're getting everyone up on stage now." And you go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." And then that became like a talking point. I think there was like stuff in the show that was like, "Oh, you've got a." Mm. And um, and that wasn't that was normal. And I think that was the year that I would have been eligible to have done to have got best newcomer. Right. And then the next year was 2011, and I did a show called Dare to Dream, which again was something else in London. And then as soon as I went up to Edinburgh, it changed completely. Um, and then that did get nominated, and that got nominated for the main award. And then um, I got nominated one more time after that, um, and, and and that's all sort of taken care of itself. I think my mm. best show was This Means War in 2012, which didn't get nominated. Um, and you, you, there's no real rhyme or reason to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've never won, but um, that's never really been my goal. And, and, I, and there was always a lot, of, you know, there's always a lot of people saying, oh, well, if you do your hour this year, you won't be able to get nominated. You know, the chance of you getting nominated is so small, you might as well just do it. Yeah. Because by the time you've done your first hour, you'll be good enough to do your second hour. And by the time you do your second hour, you know, it's not like they get progressively easier. They're yeah. all very different. I think, you know, the, mechanically, all of the shows start off with like an idea or something. But like once a show started because I had the costume in my wardrobe and I was just like, I need to come up with a show. I've got like, I wasn't going to do a show that year. And then I had like a month to put the show together. It was just like, right, okay, so I've got an Evil Knievel costume. So I wrote the show about the costume. And then, you know, once it comes from like, I saw, I was in a theme park here when I saw 
someone wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt and I was yeah. just like, oh, I'll, I'll base the poster on that and it'll be called this. It was, kind of, it was called Death's Dream. And you go, right. And that sort of came together with visual things and then I wrote the show from that. So everything comes a different way and it never gets easier, but, um, but they all have their own different challenges and they all start off, for me, in different places. And I think you just need to embrace all that. And yeah, just, just uh, I have, my little phrase is, I always say, um, if you're always looking over the fence to see what everyone else's garden is up to, then uh, your own lawn overgrows. Right? <laughs> and I just think that it's such a competitive thing. And, yeah. you just, and what I loved most about starting out was all the, uh, all the friends that I made and all the camaraderie that we had. And we'd do gigs and we felt like, oh God, that was a terrible gig, we survived it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the thing that I like least about the industry is the um, is a you know competitiveness and uh, and so I I just try and not focus on that and focus yeah. on my own stuff and let other people worry about that because you the, the idea is that you end up being so good that you can't that no one can compete with you anyway or you're so different or so unique yeah. do you know what I mean if you're worried about the fact that you might have a similar joke to someone else cut it yeah write another joke. You know, you know, it's not up for grabs. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like if 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 you're worried that you've got someone else's joke or they've got your joke, you just you just 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 get rid of it because you don't want to be doing stuff that's similar to someone else anyway. Now that might have been my own wisdom, or it might be the fact that I read that Steve Martin book ten years, <laughs> ten years ago, and that might be coming up. But um, but there's I think there's truth to it, and yeah, I think you just need to everyone needs to be a lot kinder to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> always keep hold of is uh, that you've got to always be open to learning mm -hmm. and um, and failure is not a failure failure yeah. you know if, if you have a if you have a bad gig or a tough gig or um, uh, people don't laugh at your jokes or whatever do you know what I mean if you if you if you if you struggle it doesn't you're learning more from those gigs yeah, yeah. always listen to your audience and find out what they what they find funny and where they're laughing but then don't give them kind of like ultimate control because you I did loads of previews in London that never worked and they only ever worked as soon as I got up to Edinburgh right I did I did before I got in 2011 before I got nominated I think one of my last previews was in London 70 people were in the audience and 57 of them walked out a week before I went up to Edinburgh. 57. <laughs> I said, before I went in, before I went in, I said to the guy that ran the gig, I said, how many people are in? Right. He says, we've, told, we've sold 70 tickets, right? At the end, one of them was, one of the groups was a Hindu, right? And they hadn't sold tickets, it was a free gig, and it was like, it's a Hindu? Yeah, that's you've not... Bought your, you've bought your hen to a free comedy gig where I'm doing an Edinburgh preview. You're the worst. That's lazy. I'm sure she's not grateful. <laughs> None of you are enjoying it. It's your own fucking fault. You haven't paid. You yeah. Know? So they all left. And then I did a head count at the end and there was 13 people left. One of them was my girlfriend and one of them was a director I was thinking about working with but we never worked with each other in the end. Is that because they saw 57 people leave. No, no. <laughs> Although, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of that story. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I it's got, a good story. Uh, a week later, um, I was doing, uh, I, was, I had a sold out show in Edinburgh and, and I got nominated for the big comedy yeah, award yeah. and you go, well, I don't, I, there's no rhyme or reason to that. I can't beat myself up about yeah. it. So you just like, okay, it's, oh, it's a crazy, it's a crazy adventure. So <laughs> you know, you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt, I think. So. Well, it, it, I, I think the, the first few gigs I did, like, went, went, like, surprisingly well. Like, people were laughing at my jokes. And I was like, oh, this is all right. Yeah. And then um, when... And there was always like these two jokes at the start that, that seemed to work. And then I did one gig and they didn't work. And um, I was always afraid of, of people not laughing as probably everyone is at the start. But instead it was more like, oh, this is interesting. Sure. They're not, okay. And then you sort of know that you have to 
either work at it or, or, or take a slightly different approach or to get them? Yeah, I think the majority of people who don't do comedy mm. assume that not getting a laugh is the worst thing that will ever happen to you. Yeah. They just think, oh my God, that's so awful. And you go, no. Yeah. I used to work in admin. <laughs> that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I used to do what you do. Yeah. <laughs> so this is fine. You're yeah. not laughing at my joke. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously you do care a lot. But <laughs> and every single time it hurts. But you put it into perspective. Um, so... Uh, so yeah but also my first gig was so good mm. like I absolutely smashed the yeah yeah that's how I felt that's how I felt and then I... for the next six months I died on my ass <laughs> and it was just like you go oh and you know and you still have times where you, you know you have good gigs and bad gigs it's, it'll never it'll never change that's always how it works sometimes it'll be an audience of people that are up for, for it's not just whether they like comedy or not it's like whether they like you or not yeah and sometimes you have your audience and sometimes you don't have your audience. That's the nice thing about Edinburgh, is you, it's your hour. Yeah. You're not sharing an hour with someone else. So it's not like they went, oh, I like the first guy, but not the middle guy. Yeah. And actually what happened in 2010 when I had my really good year, my breakthrough year, was um, I would do my show at four o'clock at the Tron. I don't know if you know Edinburgh, do you know Edinburgh? Yeah, yeah. So I did my show at four o'clock at the Tron and then I'd go down to the caves and I would do uh, Just the Tonic um, Big Value. Right. At seven. So I'd finish at five, I'd have to wait two hours and then I'd do Big Value. And I died every single night on Big Value. <laughs> I was on in the middle, I think. And so I would, I would have like this incredible gig that was mm. my gig, it was my one hour. I'd wait two hours and go on at 7.30 and I would die on my ass every night and that happened for the entire month. And I don't know if they'd have been the other way around. It would have affected right. what I took, you know, if I died on my ass first and then I had a had really to go good gig. Your, but yeah. I'd always have a really good gig that was almost like a religious experience, right? <laughs> um, and then I would wait for two hours and then I would die on my ass every day and it really grounded me. <laughs> Where you go, fucking hell. Um, uh, and, and it, it teaches you a lot about audience where you're just like there's no rhyme or reason to it yeah. they like me they think I'm an amazing comedian yeah. and they think I'm the worst comedian they've ever seen and you go I don't and sometimes you get that reaction within the same gig where you've got half the audience that love you and half the audience that think yeah. you're terrible but you know you just need to I don't know I just think uh, it's an in, it's, it, on a social level it, it's, uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting experience doing it because I always used to think when, when comedians would say, when comedians would die and then say, oh, it wasn't my audience or, you know, I always used to think, well... That's losers talk. Yeah. I always, <laughs> used, I always used to think, like, well, well, maybe you just weren't funny. But actually... Actually, now that you know what it's like to die yeah, on your own... Whether it's just me, you know, <laughs> doing the same thing myself. But, yeah. um, but I think because what... Not to make this podcast about me at all but um <laughs> it's my podcast Go for uh, it. Um, but because i'm doing sort of slightly odd character stuff i think sometimes people just aren't looking for that you know what i mean sometimes sometimes people just want the observational stuff or sometimes and so i, I feel like sometimes if you go into it and, and they don't they just sort of don't get the premise I guess then yeah you get you get some people who go oh wow isn't it amazing how he's deconstructing stand up comedy and he's blurring <laughs> the line between what it is to be a performer and an audience member and you get some people going why is he shouting do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like you can be both of those things in the same room and sometimes people you know I, I wrote uh, in 2013 I wrote a show called One Man Megamyth which was re a really complicated show there was kind of a lot of layers and if you took any material out or any song out the show wouldn't kind of work mm -hmm. right and it all was kind of like layered like a play because I used to write theatre right and it was, like, it was layered like there was everything tied together and themes and stuff like that and it was telling a story and um, but the thing that you, the, the I learned that year was that people aren't going to stand up to analyse it. They find it funny and they don't find it funny, but they're not looking at it at that other level. Yeah. 
and if people do get it on that level, that's that's a bonus. Yeah, yeah. But it shouldn't rely on that level. It should, at the end of the day, try and be funny. funny. And, and 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 I think that I've I got to a point in Edinburgh where I found my audience, and they came back to see me every year, and uh, and I loved that relationship. Whereas once you've had that and you have to go back into clubs and you do 20s and people are like, oh, we like the first act. Then you just kind of like go, I don't need to be here. Yeah. And, I, and, um, and, and, and some comedians um, swear by winning over a crowd and some comedians just keep gigging to their own crowd until it's bigger than, it's bigger than everyone else's, you know? Yeah. It's bigger than the majority. So I don't know. I, I'm not saying that there's a right away thing for you to do, but no. I know that through trial and error, I've tried to work out the best way it is for me to do it. Yeah. And I think that's also what's nice about this industry is there isn't like a direct ladder. And also what's great about starting out and uh, before anyone gives a shit about you yeah. is that you can try something different every night of the week. Yeah, yeah. Right? As soon as I tried, you know, I, I was really upbeat, I was really energetic, I was really happy, I was really this and this and this and this. And then eventually I was just like, oh, that I got. Uh, I was doing a gig in Edinburgh with uh, Angelos, um, and uh, it was like a long. It was like ten, ten comedians, and it was raining, and it was in the middle of the day. And uh, there were a lot of people in the audience, and one after the other, all of us acts went on stage and died on our asses. No one laughed at all for the entire thing. And by the time I went on, I was just like. Why are you here? Like, why are you here? Because nobody wants to be here. None of the acts want to come on stage for you because you're not laughing at anyone, right? You're miserable, right? And you don't want to be here because you haven't laughed for the entire hour. So why don't we just all cut our losses? You fuck off, we fuck off, and we can all just get something out of this, right? Yeah. We could spend an hour in the pub. We don't have to be here. And uh, the acts really laughed at that. Yeah. And then that was kind of like the beginning of me going, oh, yeah. I don't have to be nice. I don't have to get the audience to like me. I can just go on and say. What did the audience do? Did they sort of look. Oh, at they, you? Or they, did you get some laughs from? No, them? I think they. I think they reacted to me the same way they reacted to everyone else. But the one thing is, I enjoyed it. Right. Because it was an awful gig, and you yeah. go, "There's no one's getting anything out of this." I could do my material that I've written that I care about, and no one can laugh at it. And I'll think, "Oh, they didn't like my kids." Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or I can just go, "No, I'm not. You're, you're not even worth my jokes today." <laughs> I'm angry with you because yeah, yeah. you're making us go through with all of this. And I think, um, and then that's the, uh, but when you hit upon the thing that people, that people like, yeah. you go, oh, right, so I had my 20 where it was kind of like this nervous breakdown in 20 minutes. And then I did uh, my hour where it's kind of like this, you know, I'm very angry and I'm on stage and there's all this other stuff. Um, and I talk about like, um, you know, uh, there's all the mental health issues and masculinity and all this other stuff that's in the shows, but it's it's like this roller coaster ride. When you do that, then that's what your that's what your job is now. Yeah. So it's difficult to sort of like go, oh, this year I'm going to do sketch comedy, or this year I've worked on a character who's a little bit like Mr. Bean. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? You can't do that when they know you for a thing. Yeah. It's like Jimmy Carr can't come out and do kind of like Chekhov. He's got to yeah, do yeah, yeah. well, obviously because it's theatre as well. But do you know what I mean? He's got to. But <laughs> he's he got to do one liner. He does his one liners, yeah. and that's what people come to year in year out to see him do. It's the same thing, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of like, um, and so and so you'll get to a point where people go, oh, well, we didn't like this show as much because he didn't reinvent the wheel again. But then you go. Um, that's not my job. Mm. It's hard enough to find your own voice in this market. Yeah. So when you found it, it's yours. You should protect that. And um, yeah, I just think um, uh, that's that's one of the things that I've I've learned from it. And and you know, we were saying just before we started recording that I think that in retrospect, I, I may have thought of having um, a stage name. Mm. Uh, so, so that I could compartmentalise it all because you, it, it may be easier for me to write for that character over there. I don't think it's a character, I think it's a persona. But it would be maybe easier for me to write for a separate entity rather than to be kind of like to blur how I feel about stuff. And it'd be easier for the audience to tell the difference. Right. But I think, you know, so I could go like, well, I feel this and I'm like this and, you know, but that character's like this, and he thinks that, you know. And I think. Um, why do, Why does that uh, bother you? Um, I don't think it bothers me. But what I do, I think people 
have difficulty, uh, the amount of interviews that I've done where people say, oh, he's very different in real life. And you go, well, yes. Yeah, yeah. But you're a comedy critic as well, you know? This person that I'm talking to. And you go, don't you know the difference between yeah. performing and not performing? It's like, you know, so I just think that if it had been like this thing, you could have just, you wouldn't have to spend every day, you know, uh, saying, yeah, that's an act. And that's, you know, the act yeah. is about stuff I care about. And the act is like, from my point of view, I write about things that genuinely, um, you know, that genuinely concern me and I think about, and I write about my emotions and all of that stuff. Yeah. But you put it on stage for an hour and then you perform a show. You write a thing in January and you're performing it in August. Yeah. And so you don't, you're- You're in a different place yeah, there. You're you recreating were. a thing, it's yeah. a performance. I think that it's, 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 it's a compliment, I suppose, because you know, there's part of it that's like, don't they know it's an act? And then the other part of it's just like, they don't know it's an act. Yeah. It's, you know, and I think that's, my agent said uh, when she first started getting into comedy, um, that she went to see Jack T and uh, she thought it was the funniest thing. She couldn't believe that he got up on stage and he was just saying all that stuff off the top of his head and he was the best thing that she'd ever seen. And then she came back and saw him the next day and he did exactly the same thing. And, and I was just like, well, weren't you disappointed that you realised it was all material? And she goes, no, I thought it was amazing because he went on and did the same thing every night and he made it look like it he was the first yeah, time yeah. he'd say it. And you go, there, that is the difference. You can, so, I know when you first start um, going to see comedy and you see the same act again, and you go, oh, I was a bit disappointed. He did all the same stuff. But then if you actually appreciate it for the, a, a performance, yeah. you go, fucking hell, they made it look like they'd just thought of it. Yeah, That's yeah. incredible. Because my favorite thing to do as well is, is go to work in progress gigs, but then also to go to like the finished the tour finished afterwards thing, yeah, and yeah, yeah. see what, where the difference is. Yeah, I was on after Frank Skinner once, um, when like literally I'd done 10 gigs and Frank Skinner was downstairs at the King's Head and he went on and tried out some new stuff. And it, and it didn't, you know, he didn't, it didn't go great. Huh. Um, and I was just, and I went on after and I was just like, oh, absolutely smashed it, brilliant. And then you go, oh, I guess I'm better than Frank Skinner. I've done 10 gigs. So I guess <laughs> I've learned everything there is to know about comedy. Yeah. And then I saw that, that routine in the final show. It was at the Birmingham NEC. And it's one of my favorite routines. I just thought it was, I just think it's, inc uh, one of, it's incredible, that bit of stand-up. Um, it's the bit when he's getting a text off of, uh, he's texted his girlfriend oh, and yeah. she hasn't replied back. And it goes on a flight of fancy. And it's just like, I just think it was really, like it's performed really well and it's kind of like, it's dark and it's all these things. But it, that was not apparent in front of the 20 people that were in that room that night. But when he did it in front of 10,000 people, mm -hmm. it was, it's incredible. And you go, oh, right. And so that's what I mean about always learning. You think when you start out, you know, oh, I guess I know it. I, th I thought I heard Russell Brand say that it takes 200 gigs to know what you're doing, but I've done 10. <laughs> and three of them have been absolutely outstanding. So, you know, I think that you have to, I think, I think it's human nature really, but I think you have the tendency of kind of like, right, uh, uh, chalking up all of your good experiences down to you did it deliberately. Yeah. And all your bad ones that it's someone else's fault. And it's somewhere in between. You can take credit, you got up there in the first place, but also, <laughs> it might have just been a nice night. Yeah. So. The nervous, the nervous breakdown thing mm. is something you do quite a lot. Well, it's like a recurring thing in your... Because I, I spent a lot of last night watching... Um, your eat your heart out. Oh yeah, 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 which is great. Um, but it, that's that also <laughs> is is you trying to hold. Well, that's my the Nick Helm persona trying to hold it together. That's whilst my, yeah, that's my persona. They were like, do you want to do a food show? And I was um, not really. We did uh, we did a pilot, and the pilot didn't really turn out the way. 
I wanted it. It was non. It was non-broadcast, and so right. we did this pilot, and I was just like, "Yeah, the pilot's fine," but I, I'm not sure. Anyway, it went away, and I didn't talk. Uh, you know, I didn't hear anything about it for about a year, and then about a year later, um, the producer said, uh, "Oh, good news! We've got twenty episodes." And I was just like, <laughs> "Oh God, twenty episodes of that! Oh dear!" And I didn't want to do it. Right. And then there was it much more of a straightforward like I'm it, just going to come go and eat in restaurants with people. Yeah, like. it felt a bit laddie, and it was it wasn't called that. It was well, what happened was me and my girlfriend split up, and um, I literally wanted to get out of the house. And they said, "Do you want to do a <laughs> do you want to do a pilot for a food show?" And I was like, uh, "Is it televised?" And they said, "No." I was like, "Yep, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely." I did that. I went up to Manchester. I can't remember what it's called. It's called, oh, I can't, I don't know, I can't remember what it was called. Um, but it was basically me talking to the camera, and it was quite lad. It was like Top Gear for food. Right. And it was like, um, I'm going to eat lunch, breakfast, dinner, maybe a snack. Today I'm in <laughs> Manchester, home of the Hacienda. Right. And it was kind of like, um, and then I'd go in, and I'd meet the people, and... Um, and meet the people that owned the restaurant. We went to the, I went to two places, I think. I went to Jerk... Uh, a Caribbean jerk chicken restaurant. Right. And I met the people and they were really nice. Uh, and then at the end, uh, I'd eat the food and then I would uh, come outside and give them a rating out of 10. Right. I was just like, what's the point of that? I'm, I'm a nice person and there's no point that I'm ever going to give anyone like a six. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I'm never going to, I mean, it's always going to be a 10 out of 10. Do you know what I mean? Just like, so there was that. Um, but one, two things happened in the pilot, which were just like, ah, hang on. First thing that happened in the pilot was that when I ate the jerk chicken, I got very emotional about it as a joke. And I was just like, this is the nicest food I've ever eaten. And it looked like I was about to burst into tears. Right. And then the other thing that happened was um, when we did the second, uh, when we did the second section, I went around a woman's house uh, and she makes ice cream. And so we were making ice cream together. And what happened was um, she, uh, A, I hate eggs. And we had to um, separate the whites from the yolks by hand in order to make the ice cream. Yeah. And it hit my gag reflex and I kept almost being sick in the kitchen. Um, and then the other thing was we got halfway through the meeting and my face was on fire and my eyes were streaming. And I was just like, do you have cats? And she was like, yeah. I'm allergic to cats. And so we were filming this thing where I suddenly just get into this sneezing fit and we make, my hands are covered in raw egg and I'm gagging because I <laughs> feel like I'm going to be sick and I'm sneezing at this cat. And, and it was just like, it was like, it was like, it was like Kirby Enthusiasm or yeah, something yeah, yeah. where it was just, you just like, it was like a series of accidents that turned into this thing. And it was ridiculous. And, I, and then when we finished the show, I was just like, if we could do that for a series, I think that'd be great. None mm. of that was planned. But, you know, if we could do that sort of thing, that's what I'm, that's, I, I'm interested in that. Um, I'm interested in doing a comedy show that, ha that has food in it. Um, so, and then I saw um, High Fidelity, mm. the film... The John Cusack film, and I was just like, oh, but, and also if you took in an element of me and my girlfriend have split up, and now I'm going to take you through all of the restaurants that we used to hang out when we were together. Mm. So that was like the, those two things was just like the happy accidents from the pilot and that. And then it was like, can we do it like that? And they were like, sure. And that was that. But then also, yeah, I guess I do that thing about having a break. But that, like I said before, that's my thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. kind of like, that's what. That's what I. That's what I do, and you could sort of like subvert my act by kind of like, oh, I'm really in a good mood today. And I think when I did heavy entertainment, we had episodes like that. Yeah. We had an episode where I was in love, and we had an yeah, episode yeah. where it was all good. And the whole series basically had kind of like, um, the series had uh, that sort of structure, but the episode by episode, they would kind of like be quite different from each other. Yeah. Um, but it's just a way of kind of like. Um, it's just a way of sort of like putting putting what you do into a format, I suppose. Yeah. Whereas, it's not um, it's not so much like uh, like if it was something like Jimmy Carr presenting eight out of ten cats, you don't expect to hit it for, you don't expect for him to go on 
<laughs> an emotional journey. Yeah. That's not what he does, you know? But what I do is that's what I do. Yeah. And so, um, so I suppose it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different act to that. And so it's quite sometimes, it's not really about writing, you know, uh, writing the jokes, but it's about finding, the jokes are sort of like a vehicle for the act. Yeah. You go, you could actually be talking about anything because what the actual act is about is what's just happened to me before I went on yeah, stage. Yeah, and you're trying to hold it together. And I'm holding it together while I'm on stage. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, hey, I've got this really great bit about Brexit. You know, it's kind of like, I might have a bit about Brexit, but I've made it entirely all about the fact that my girlfriend's left. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's sort of like the angle, I suppose. I was I was listening to or sort of re-listening to the Richard Herring of Leicester Square podcast that you're on. And he finger fucked me. Yeah, in the belly button. But that sent me down a rabbit hole of of belly button fluff research. Oh yeah, yeah. Because (laughs) (laughs) because. And then I had a conversation with my girlfriend last night. I was like, do I talk to him about belly button fluff? Is that a bit weird when you first meet? But no, it's fine. I'm going to do it because I spent an hour on it. Hello. Hello. I, sp- I spent an hour on it last night. On what? On belly button fluff. What? So I, I can't, <laughs> it's cool. we can't, I can't waste that time. I can't waste that time. What do you want to know? Well, no, it's just because you said you get a lot of belly button fluff. Well, what, on show and tell? Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> when I was on stage, yeah. <laughs> I do actually get a lot of belly button flop. I've got quite a cavernous belly button flop. I have a similar problem. Oh, really? With, with the do you be- get belly button fluff? Yeah, mm. like a lot. And mm. I don't know, I, don't, I didn't know where it comes from. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. So this is what I... I think, it, but you saw the, you saw the little routine. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It's like, well, the ha- I think what happens is your ha- the hair on your body rubs on your clothes and it all sort of like gravitates towards your belly button and that's where it collects. Yeah, so I found an article. Oh, right, you know. So I thought I... I is, that, is, that, is that basically what happens? <laughs> this, basically, there was this guy who spent three years researching it called George Steinhauser. Oh, God, of course, George Who's Steinhauser. Who's a chemist, as, yeah, as right. you know. Uh, he's, a, he's a doctor. Um, he made his discovery after studying 503 pieces of fluff from his own belly button. Right. Um, and what was the discovery? He spent three years doing it. Um, yeah. He's basically discovered that there's a different type of body hair that only some people have that, well, like some people have more of yeah. compared to others, that traps the stray pieces of lint from your clothes and draws them into your belly button. But that's crazy, right? I it's know. like you're the out. It's like the hair <laughs> in your body is its own living organism that is feeding off your uh, the lint off your clothes yeah. and popping it into your belly yeah, button yeah. to what feed it. It's <laughs> I, like, don't, I don't know. He says, um, yeah, yeah. He doesn't actually say why it happens. It just happens. If it was a fish in the ocean that was, the, right. the, do you know what I mean? That this sort of recurrence was happening to. Yeah. You would study it and you go, isn't it weird that you know <laughs> that, that that specific species of yeah. fish have this thing occurring yeah. to them? If people were like studying us, they'd go, isn't it weird that there's a certain <laughs> subspecies of human that gets belly button fluff? And yeah, it's, it's, but it's crazy. Yeah, but it is mad. It does happen to people, right? But it, but I just think because it's an everyday occurrence to a lot of people, people just are sort of like yeah, yeah. But just stop and think about it. It's absolutely mental. <laughs> so apparently, there's little like barbed hooks on the hairs. Oh, I don't doubt it. That like <laughs> must like take it away. Is... He also asked his friends, family, workmates about their own belly button. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's he's gone down the rabbit hole of, of really. So apparently, I mean, that seems like an obvious statement to make. He said Dr. Steinhauser established that shaving one's belly will result in a fluff-free navel, but only until the hair grows back. That's kind of an obvious thing to say, isn't it? Really. Yes. I could have told you. I could have. Told, I could have told you. I didn't need to do three years of research. To, no. No. I um, mean. Yeah, well, but there are th- paid the bills. But sure. this is what <coughs> I thought was mental. 
your new clothes. So apparently it happens more with new clothes yeah, than old clothes, yeah. I which would, I didn't know that. I would imagine. Because, if you think about it, <laughs> they haven't... <laughs> You haven't worn them loads and washed yeah, them loads. that's true. And they would be more... But, do you know what I mean? Let's just say even if you never washed your T-shirt... Yeah. ...and you wore it for a year... Yeah. ...they would be more to collect off of it at right. first than they would be later. That's... Yeah. Like a supermarket during a national crisis. <laughs> right? There's more at the beginning than at the end. But apparently, clothes can lose up to one thousandth of their weight. I don't doubt it. From, from getting into your belly button. I've got, a, I've got T-shirts that are older than you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's very little left of them. So, yeah, I just thought... Um, no, that is... Um, because I'd spent... You'd spent an hour... Well, yeah, no, do you know what? I've, I, I, and it's one of those things that I always mean to look up. But when did I do that clip? I did that clip in 2009, maybe? I thought there was a risk that you may have looked it up since. No, I, I, but, I, I um, haven't got around to it in 10 years. But, but clearly you don't have as much free time on your hands as I do. To, um, I don't know to, about that. To devote I to am a professional up. comedian. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of empty days. <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham Barker yeah. holds, him, holds the Guinness World Record. Yeah. Of what? The most belly button fluff? Yeah, biggest collection. Because he's been collecting it in his in jars every day since 1984. I always mean to collect it as well, but... Why, why, why? Um, <laughs> what, 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 what would you do with that? Well, I just think it's... Uh, I don't know, but it's just one of those things where you go... I could get a free T-shirt. Do you know what I mean? That's, so the routine, <laughs> the routine is me looming it, right? Like it's wool. Right. And then I loom it, and out of, <laughs> out of the loom thread that I make to yeah. all this woolly belly button fluff, yeah. I make another T-shirt or I make a jumper, and then I wear that. And when I wear it, all of my belly button collects a tiny little t-shirt <laughs> right so it's like it's, do you know what I mean so it's just like hang on well if you wear a t-shirt and then you get fluff in your belly button then what happens if you wear fluff you might get a t-shirt in your belly button that was the joke right <laughs> it was a bit of a stretch right uh, I used to do lots of really surreal stuff but um, but uh, yeah it's um, uh Oh, yeah, I've never really thought about it to the extent where I've got scientists involved. Um, it is so weird. But I don't know why I would personally collect it. No, I'm still waiting for... Aren't you curious? I mean, if you get it, why, don't you think that one day, <laughs> if you get enough, you could make some new clothing out well, of it? Well, I hadn't thought about it until for now. For every hundred T-shirts you buy, you could make an, a free T-shirt. Yeah. I reckon it's I mean, less than thought. I reckon it's less than a hundred. Twenty. Perhaps. With every twenty t-shirts, you could make a free t-shirt. Imagine that, though. Come on, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining. I don't know. People go, "That's a nice jumper. Where'd you get that from?" I made it. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of wool is but that? I don't know if I'm you good enough. You don't want to know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't. I'd have to learn how to make garments. But same as comedy, you've got to start at the bottom and work your way That's up. That's true. My friend does do fashion, though, so he could make it. Yeah. So all I need to do is convince him that he should make clothes out of my belly button. <laughs> Just learn it yourself. Stop being so lazy. Oh. <laughs> don't, get, don't get your friend Yeah, but involved. I'm already doing the collecting. I'm already doing the work by, by yes, creating but, the yeah, fluff. That's, but the creating the fluff is a byproduct, isn't it? And oh, collecting is it, it is, uh, is, is something that you do when you're watching telly at night. <laughs> there you go, bloody hell. Love, look at that. <laughs> Fucking hell. Oh, God. It's we it is weird, but it's... <laughs> I, I think it would be possible to actually, you know, make something Make a garment. Mm. Well, it's, it's food for thought, Ooh, I guess. Don't, don't eat with it. <laughs> don't, don't eat around it. So there you have it, Nick Helm. My thanks to Nick for taking part in the show and my thanks to you, the listener, for joining me this week. Um, if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share it around with your friends, uh, your family, the people you like, the people you don't like. I don't really care if you like them or not. Just send them the podcast. Um, 
And uh, don't forget to join me on all the various social handles I talked about earlier. And uh, if you're feeling, you know, extra generous, then um, chucking us some money at patreon.com forward slash the last line would always be appreciated. Um, Until next time, have fun in the sun if it continues. Wherever you are, I'm James Alban, and this is The Last Line. in-home Wi-Fi that you can control with Xfinity XFi. See who's online, pause your Wi-Fi, or even set a curfew for the kids. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit an Xfinity store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.